Funeral March of a Marionette by John Metcalf. and little George had chosen Millbank and the western sweep of river past the Tate, for a variety of reasons. First, since their expedition had demanded secrecy, it was essential to select a route where Mother wouldn't think of following them. Second, the competition in this district promised to be slight, and coppers plentiful. Third, and most cogent, they had never been along that way before. Not further than the bridge at any rate, said little George. Past there, I've seen the houses all have steps with lions on. And at the crowded crossing by St. Stephen's Green, he had exhaled a sudden breath of wonderment that hung like smoke upon the chilly air. Good! What do you think them bobby skits to eat makes them so big? Free feeds a day they has, I'm telling you. And rum steak every time. Alf was head and shoulders taller than his brother, more raw-boned, lanker, but with the same snub nose, pale, rather wizened face, and crop of gingerish hair. Come on, he now adjured contemptuously. Don't stand gassing like a silly little kid. Next thing you know, you'll have us all upset. Against the soapbox trolley, which he pushed, were nailed at a slight slope, two wooden battens. These, though intended primarily to serve as shafts, were at this juncture better used as handles, since George could thus assist more easily by pulling on the rope in front. Alf was relieved when they had passed the burly figures of the constables. One of them, stamping a sullen foot upon the snow, had, so he fancied, eyed them suspiciously, inimically and it was foolish to invite inquiry by lingering. Though he himself had thought out this excursion, he could not quite dispel a faint uneasiness. But in their veins, excitement threaded tinglingly like fire, elation, and an exhilarated sense of mystery, adventure. It was an hour ago that, stealing noiselessly with beating hearts, they had crept out through the back gate, along the mews, and made their way conspiratorially toward the river front, George shivering a little in his father's cut-down trousers, had wanted instantly to break into a run, but Alf, more cautious, had restrained him. Despite the cold, he had a notion that to be seen running would attract attention, safer to amble nonchalantly for a bit. Now, halting for a moment beneath Cur de Leon, he blew upon numbed fingertips. Oh, said little George, snapping his arms from side to side and staring shrewdly upwards at the statue. Wouldn't half tip him for the Derby Elf, with his old sword and iron gloves and things? Gee up, Steve! They stood a minute longer in the wintry stillness. Faces of passers-by were rouged with cold their footfalls hushed. The November air was raw, and in a greasy, leaden-coloured sky, a few fat, smudgy flakes of snow 
were drifting here and there, uncertainly. Already it was growing dark. Behind them, somewhere in the Victoria Tower Gardens, came a faint crackle and a spurt of flame. Huh, <laughs> uttered Alf. See that? That was a firework. We'd best be keen on. Down Millbank they proceeded at a trot, skirting the curb. Before the front of the art gallery, they paused once more. Big Ben behind them solemnly boomed half past three. Upon the river, over silent streets, a greenish dusk was settling. Millet, enveloped in a fleece of dirty snow, loomed with a vague benevolence, though spectrally, closer and intermittently illumining the murk with changing gleams. A Roman candle popped up emerald and ruby balls. Silly young tykes, said Alf. I wouldn't let off his works on the fourth. George moved impatiently upon his toes. Now, he suggested, now. Alf looked at him and at the trolley. For a soapbox it was rather longer than usual and had been fitted carefully with what had once been perambulator wheels. One of them still retained its rubber tyre. Part of the space between the shafts was boarded in so as to form a sloping, couch-like back. Something covered loosely with rags and sacking occupied the whole interior and extended for some distance up the slant. All right, said Alf. As he unwound the sacking, little George capered excitedly about him. Good old Gus! Alf, you weren't half a nut, you weren't, to think of it. I'm going to spend my share of what he gets on fireworks, I am. Free of its shrouding rags, a curious object lay revealed. Upon the incline of the wooden chariot rested, it seemed, the head and tiny shoulders of a man. But though the huddled torso might conform to standards human or half-human, the face above gave hasty judgment pause. It was rosy, doll-like and from beneath a crownless bowler hat surveyed the brothers with a vacant stare. In the fast-falling dusk its eyes were blank, expressionless as coals or pools of soot. The hair, black too, was long and at about the level of the ears, grotesquely bobbed. George gave the battered bowler an affectionate pet. <laughs> Don't the old man look sarsy, Elfie, eh? But he's to learn how to behave hisself, he is. None of your larks tonight, old Gus, you hear? Else you won't get no supper when we're home. Alf, from inside his jacket, had produced a square of cardboard provided with a string. This he hung carefully round Gus's neck, removing for a moment the misshapen hat to do so. Upon the placard, ran a legend in block capitals. Please spare a copper for the guy. Out of the sullen sky, the flakes came hurrying now more thickly, steadily. George, who had ceased his hopping to admire his brother's handiwork, took up his rope again. Which way? he said. We'd better start before it comes on hard. Besides, just after that, you here just then? Don't want to get mixed up with them. As they set off once more, the significance of his words became apparent. 
voices raised in a broken sing-song chant pursued them distantly. Please spare a copper, a copper for the guy. Little George, with shoulders braced and chest thrown out, bristled indignantly. <laughs> Some oaks them ordinary lot has got. Bet you they don't make more than a tenner altogether. Not half as much as us, at any rate. But it was not until they had proceeded for ten minutes on their way that the first penny fell into the cap which Alf had taken from his own red-tousled head and placed conspicuously in Gus's lap. A sailor, issuing with boon companions from a suddenly illumined doorway, spat copiously, and, having thrown the copper, mingled a bash profanity with charity. What did that matter, since the coin was there? And after this, good fortune seemed to follow them. An old gentleman, peering benevolently through spectacles, contributed another penny, and a young lady, fashionably dressed in furs, presented Alf with a whole sixpenny piece, her smile next moment fading curiously, instantaneously away. Finally, a short, top-hatted man with an umbrella stooped to pace a tuppence in the cap, then raised himself abruptly. He had, Alf fancied, been about to speak, but as they hurried off, had to content himself with gazing after them inquisitively. Tenpence already! exclaimed George delightedly. Didn't I tell you, Elfie? Good old Gus! They turned from the riverfront up a long street in which a lamplighter had just begun his round. It was golden now, the air sharper, and the snow falling thicker, more continuously. Encircling every light as it sprang up, appeared a sudden haloing swirl of white, but from below, against the yellow radiance of the lamp, each tumbling flake looked black. Alf, with anxiety, noted the growing clearness of the trolley's wheel tracks, and of the prints of little George's feet. Better get somewhere where there's people, quick, he counselled, frowning, or else they'll all be gone indoors afore we're there. For a while, it seemed, their run of luck had ceased. But presently, as they approached the lights and bustling movement of a more populous shopping district, fate smiled on them again. Windows behind the seething, ever-failing curtain of the snow were gaily decked, shone dazzlingly upon a white, a madcap world. Faces were eager, tingling, and from open mouths puffed out great clouds of breath, like steam. Voices rang suddenly from nowhere, were the next instant lost and muffled, sinking curiously away. Strange striding forms, illumined momently, shook tinsel drops from hats and overcoats, then vanished utterly. From somewhere down a side street came the damp fizz and splutter of a firework, its final smothered and half-hearted pop, greeted by piercing screams and whoops of joy. Copper by copper, Gus's hoard had mounted steadily. Pennies and apennies were flung into the cap, or pressed into Alf's hand by people, who, half-blinded, seldom paused to look more closely at the trolley and its occupant. Little George, his head held high, strutted majestically 
sumptuously before, crying in tones which triumph and excitement rendered gruff the words upon the placard. Penny for the guy! Penny for the guy! Until the opening of the saloons at six, it would, Alf thought, be more remunerative, as well as pleasanter, to keep upon the move than to stand cold and shivering upon a pitch. Once, however, they stopped for a few moments by a railway arch, where an old man with a wooden leg was playing an accordion. At first, considering probably that their presence would divert the pity of the passers-by and spoil his trade, he eyed them sourly, going so far, when his malevolent looks had no effect, as to grimace and threaten them with oaths. Why don't you sling your bloody up, you But a little later the expression on his face changed. He had stumped off, walking his throat and playing vigorously. Then, after he had got a yard or two away, turned back and put a penny in the cap. On and on, through seething eddies, wildly wreathing clouds of giddying white, flocking and scurrying, dancing and madly scampering, the icy flakes swept, stinging in their eyes, crept in a chilly prickle down their necks. George was elated still, and shouting, Spare a penny for the guy! Oh, but Alf spare. behind him plodded silently. Something was singing in his ears, making his feet feel tired. Within his brain, perpetually, the dizzy helter-skelter of the snow went to a kind of silly, jigging tune. It was the same that the old wooden-legged man had played, and though he tried to banish it by stamping, blowing on his hands, it sounded numbly yet. Somewhere between Belgravia and Pimlico, they ran into a crowd of urchins, pulling or pushing little trolleys like themselves. George's refrain was echoed now competitively on every side, for there were at least a dozen children working the neighbourhood in company. Please spare a copper for the guy. Please spare a copper for the guy. The downfall for a space had slightly moderated, sufficiently to permit the fireworks being kindled under shelter of a cap or outspread coat. The changing flare of green and crimson lights fell suddenly upon rogue faces, lolling and grimacing heads. Masks with long noses, grinning red-lipped mouths, protruding tongues, moved in grotesque procession through the night. Once, in a shower of sparks, a squid dropped, hissing into Gussie's lap, exploded there, and singed the sacking cards. And the next moment, a large snowball thudded on Alf's cheek. Oh, said little George. What say we join in with this lot and get some fish works too? But Alf at this suggestion shook his head. Come on, he said. Let's get away from here. We'll have all ours tomorrow, on the proper day. He was tired, all at once dispirited. He could not have said why. His eyes were hot and heavy, dazzled by the light upon the snow and in his ears the tune that the old man had played was dinning giddily. A distant clock chimed six. Now all the pubs are opening, 
we'll get a plenty more, said little George. We can just stand around outside the door and then... Well, he suddenly broke off. What's up with you? Nothing, said Alf. Only, I guess we ought to think of getting back. What, get back home? What for? George's voice was blank. Yes, I'm a-going anyway. I'm cold, I tells you. But even to himself, he was unable to explain what troubled him. He leaned forward to brush the snow out of the top of Gus's hat and from the coverings about his arms and chest. This office they had halted to perform at intervals upon their wanderings. Now, as his hands explored the shrunken contours underneath the sacking, a chill, more than physical, crept up his spine. Get on, he repeated roughly. Can't you hear what I say? Little George, grumbling, picked up the rope which, in the course of this discussion, he had dropped, and sullenly turned back along the road by which they came. They made their way, jog-trotting silently, down streets which were alternately deserted, ghost-like and forlorn, or gay and glittering with the lights of shops. George, no longer crying his refrain, was sobered, and beneath this unnatural taciturnity, resentful too, in the inviting brilliance streaming from saloon or window front, he would attempt from time to time to slacken speed, but at Alf's instant sharp command, would hurry on again. They proceeded in this manner for perhaps half an hour, till the riverside was reached, and here at last they halted to take breath. The snow was hardly falling now. Only a fitful, wandering flake or two came feathering down. The sky was even clear enough for them to see the stars, and on their right the river ran like steel. Little George was glum and querulous. Let me push now, he said, and you can take the rope. I've got fed up with pulling all the time. Hereabouts it was darkish but in the pale reflected glimmer of the snow he could make out his brother's face. Its set and strained expression frightened him. Alfie, what's up? What makes you look so queer? He paused, then added in a whisper, Is it him? Him? No, of course not. Why should it be him? You make me tired, silly things you say. You've got to get back home. Before they start missing him, that's all. Come on. Alf set his hands peremptorily upon the shafts, and George, with a half-discontented, half-submissive sigh, began once more to pull. They had, however, got no farther than a dozen paces when, as by common instinct, they stopped suddenly again. Something was happening in the trolley. Their glances met one instant in a frozen stare, then lowered slowly. Under the rags and sacking, 
A faint, twitching movement was apparent. Gus's head rose slightly from its wooden rest. Curious sound, like a thin hiccup, was repeated thrice, then ceased. <gasps> Elfie, he must have taken ill, well, Gus, he must. He was that way last time before we went into the hospital. Elfie, why didn't you speak? But Elf made no reply. It was not he, but little George who pulled the trolley onwards to the nearest lamp. Elfie, he called again more urgently. Be quick! He's been took bad, I say. Let's get him home. He had reached out a timid hand to Gus's shoulder. But at that instant, started and drew back, staring alarmedly across the shadowed road. Quick! he repeated in a warning whisper. I can hear somebody coming. See him too. Then, in a desperate undertone, he added, He's a cop. The policeman, who, patrolling stolidly his cheerless beat, had marked the trio underneath the lamp, was moved, in fact, by little more than idle curiosity, less from suspicion as to what they were about than to relieve monotony he had drawn near. His attitude, when he had strode majestically into the circle of the light, was rather condescendingly benevolent than menacing. Alf, hanging back and following slightly in the rear, stopped now a pace or two away. He could see little George stiffen defensively before his natural enemy, could see the Jove-like form above stoop ponderously, with slow, inquiring dignity. Yet he himself stood fixed and motionless. A strange inertia held him as a dream. For a little while the presence of the constable was even reassuring and consoling. Not that they would escape a beating when they all got home, or they would get thrashed for certain if old Gus were really ill and had to go to hospital again. It was his fault. Dully he wondered what would happen to the money in the cap. But as at length he roused himself and walked reluctantly toward the light, a vague misgiving haunted him again, a dark uncertainty. The policeman's manner was no longer jocular, amused. His expression had grown curious, then puzzled, gravely dubious, serious finally, and something else. Alf, with a sudden terror dragging at his limbs, ran forwards. He caught his brother's arm, and as he did so, tears of which he could not tell the meaning, started in his eyes. By this time, little George, though still uncomprehendingly, was crying too. Today's story was Funeral March of a Marionette, written by John Metcalfe. It was read by 
Jasper Lestrange. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.